Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Everyone, this is Don Mackey. I'll be your host with this edition of Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Joining me today is Peter with the Institute for Work and the Economy, hailing out of Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. Glad you could join us today. This is a great pleasure. Thanks, Don. So, Peter, why don't you share a little bit about your background, your journey? You've got a rich history, you've done some amazing work through your career. Uh, share a little bit with us. Well, I've been around a long time. I'm part of the boomer generation. Basically, my career revolves around two things. One, I've always focused throughout my life on the idea of some sort of public service, public activity. It even dates back to high school, but we're not going to go that far. But it's always been a recurring theme in my life. And then the other is an appreciation for the importance of bringing both sort of practical life and academics. Throughout my career, you will see me, there have been times where I've been very much involved in sort of day-to-day politics. I was a senior staffer for the Senate president here in the state of Illinois, state Senate president, for 12 years. Got engaged in a lot of issues, ranging from economic and workforce development to the hard-nosed politics of redistricting. At the same time, I've pursued an academic career that's actually extended into the into the 90s, earned my PhD in my late 40s, early 50s. So it's been this combination of two. My interest in workforce development, again, dates back to when I was as the Senate president, but really got fully engaged in the area late 1990s when I was on staff at the National Alliance of Business. I was a regional VP that included Nebraska, as well as several other Midwestern, rural, predominantly rural states in the Midwest. And then went on and launched the Institute in 2000, initially as part of Northern Illinois University's Center for Governmental Studies. And then we pulled it out as an independent standalone in the mid-2000s. We've always been a 501c3. We've always had an independent board of directors. And right now we're at 19 directors, which is very large for a very small operation in terms of staff size. And our focus has been largely over the years on picking up on tough issues in workforce, such as integrating immigrants into the workforce, such as a large initiative we did with funding from the Department of Labor in 2008-2009 around what we called the Midwest Innovation Initiative. And that was based on the, on the idea of how do communities develop economically, but based on and drawing from the strength of its workforce and building on that, a human capital first. And then most recently, in 2017, we got very interested in this whole discussion around the many futures of work, partly because we were very disappointed in the way it was being characterized. It seemed to me and the board that the only people they were talking about when they were talking about future of work were 30-something, predominantly male, predominantly white, who were returning to their parents' couches and people wondering what the heck to do with them. And we thought that it missed rural, it missed Blacks, Latinos, other people of color. It missed the issues around gender, 
And it really missed the discussion around what is the responsibility of business in terms of future of work. It isn't all about workers having to conform to whatever it is that businesses believe they need without there also being some dialogue about well, what makes sense as a stakeholder, what makes sense for all the stakeholders in business, not just the shareholders. We pushed back on that quite a bit. We did a conference on this in 2017. And then since then, we've been engaged on a project we call Achieving the Promise of Work, which is really to take the discussion to the local level, to engage communities, to get a deeper understanding of what's driving changes in the workforce, what's driving changes in the way business is done in their communities, what can be done about that, but also what needs to happen in terms of how do people adapt and thrive as businesses change. This year, because of the pandemic, the idea of going out and talking to people directly disappeared. What we did instead was we launched an initiative, mostly out of our own resources. We do have a partner in Source America in addressing issues around people who are workers with disability. But the aim of this particular project has been to, through the marvels of Zoom, engage groups of people in deep dive conversations around what's happened this year in terms of the pandemic, civil action, and all the other craziness that's happened this year. And is it possible that these can actually be collectively used as a pivot point, as an inflection point? And then what can we do? What can we use these for and how do we use them? So that's the idea. Yeah. And of course, my friend Casey Billets at the Nebraska Community Foundation and I had a chance to have some of these conversations here in Nebraska. So talk a little bit more about, you've really done a variety of different groups, different communities across the United States during the COVID shutdown using Zoom as a way to have those conversations. I'd be interested in some of your major takeaways, but highlight who are some of the groups that you've worked with in 2020 utilizing this remote technology that we've all become very familiar with and maybe some of the major takeaways from those conversations? It's fairly straightforward. We generally work with a partner and our partners have included, as you said, Casey and the Breast Community Foundation, but it's also been uh, with the National Urban League in cooperation with them we organized two sets of conversations involving in total 20 different urban leagues from around the country, large cities, small cities. We've worked, as I said earlier, with Source America in addressing the challenges and opportunities that are being presented with respect to workers with disabilities. We also worked with a leader in long-term care, PHI, and with them, we organized a conversation with both providers as well as even actually a frontline worker in long-term care in Massachusetts. Charlotte in Chicago. In Charlotte, we actually, through the help of my board chair, Ronnie Bryant, who's in Charlotte, we actually organized two conversations on our own with civic leaders, community-based organization leaders, and so forth within the community. We made a real effort in that case to involve people in fact, in all of these cases, to involve people who aren't always invited to the table to talk. And then finally, our pilot was actually in Cook County, Chicago, Cook County. And that was because I know a lot of folks and because we had the help of a Cook County commissioner, Anna, Alma Anaya, to pull together a number of civic entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs and others within the Chicago area. Each of these conversations were pretty straightforward. We had booked them for two hours straight. We had two announced goals, and we're sincere about them. 
The first goal is that each conversation is intended to produce a series of ideas that the people who participate in the conversations can carry forward on their own. We feel very strongly that the first deliverable is a deliverable back to the people with whom we are engaged. They're our primary customer on this. It's something that we feel very strongly about. The second is that the combination of all these conversations are giving us an opportunity to get some ideas about what are some of the large policy issues. And we sort of data mine these conversations for that. That's our responsibility. We're not asking people to give us an agenda. Our role is to discover an agenda as part of these conversations. We appreciate the time and energy your people are putting in this, and we want to make sure that we give back right away. In terms of some of the themes, one of the things that just struck me in all of these settings, and, and you can imagine just given the mix, you know, you have urban leagues that are on the front line of, of dealing with the civil actions that are, that are a result of what followed Breonna Taylor's death and what followed George Floyd's death and others. There's a lot of, even though we're talking about sort of the economics and workforce issues, that all gets wrapped up into those discussions. And so we have people who are just intensely emotional and invested in discussions around understanding and dealing with systemic racism and, and so forth. And then we had others who were dealing with rural Nebraska, the fallout of the loss of the tourism industry in many places, disruptions in supply chains because businesses couldn't get parts or whatever from their suppliers because of their shutdowns or because of what's going on with the trade disputes and so forth. And yet in all of this, folks were optimistic. I mean, in every situation, people are optimistic. They felt like they talked about being able to do something, to take an action that was constructive and positive. And they saw, in every case, we saw people seeing opportunities in all this chaos that's happened during the course of 2020. And that was, um, frankly, hoped for, but I wasn't sure whether to expect it or not. The other thing was is that along the same line, there is a lot more that sort of binds us together in terms of some of these issues and solutions than what separates us. So we heard people talk about wanting to break down silos. Typically, they're referring to governmental program silos, but not always. Just the isolation of you have different groups in their different camps and the silos that exist because of those functions of identity, however you want to self-identify. But people are saying, we need to break these down. In the discussions in, in the cities, we heard people talking about new allies, new alliances that they hadn't seen before, and wanting to take those alliances from being people joining arms and sort of marching together to everybody having some skin in the game and doing something constructively and collaboratively but also just sort of the economics of what's going on across the country, this push now because people are working remotely. It's interesting because, you know, I heard from people in, in the disability world talk about this is a great opportunity because now what used to be seen as accommodation of having to allow somebody to work at home and contort your operations to accommodate that person's interest because of a mobility problem they may have in terms of not being able to get to the office on a frequent basis and seeing the opportunity of remote work as being opening up new opportunities for workers with disabilities. Same time, I heard the same comment from 
rural Nebraska saying, well, you know, now distance isn't such a big deal. We have broadband issues, we have connectivity issues and so forth, but those are technical. But now the opportunity here exists that people who are living in in rural parts of the country will be able to compete for the same jobs that only seem to exist in cities where you have higher densities. Again, from the urban leagues, we were hearing people talk about this presents new opportunities because even in cities, there are mobility issues, transportation isn't good, you know, whatever. And now you have, again, opportunities for people to participate in this. So there were some of those things that came up, people were excited about. At the same time, I think that there was also an appreciation, and sometimes I interjected this as well, which is, okay, well, then how do you maximize this? Let's take this issue of remote work. What does that mean? What that means, too, is that when you take geographic boundaries down in terms of labor markets, now all of a sudden, you've expanded those labor markets to include people from all over the world. Are you prepared for that? Are your people in your communities prepared to be able to compete in this more globalized setting? It opens up opportunities to communities, but that opening occurs everywhere. And the question is now is that with this changing, how are people in your community or in your setting or whatever going to be able to succeed in this new environment? So we had some of those issues as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have seen this in our work across rural America that we can perceive these threats. You're talking about one person's opportunity as another person's threat. It works both ways. In an entrepreneurial mindset, which is the space where I work, how does a community, how does an organization, how does a business see the opportunity knowing that opportunity also is present for somebody else to compete with them and move into their space? And that kind of brings us to you and I connecting and our conversations. Uh, you know, we first met at you and Marion Kaufman Foundation's Entrepreneurship Summits a few years ago. Uh, as we were taking this in, we would find a corner and have a conversation and discovered that while we were kind of working in somewhat different fields, there were some commonalities in our world. We're pursuing entrepreneurship because we believe it can build a better economy in rural communities that creates more meaningful work, living wage work, a stronger set of careers. As we wrap up today's podcast, share some thoughts on where you see the connections between entrepreneur-led development and your work in the field of workforce. I'm glad you brought up entrepreneurship. That actually was another frequent theme that came up across these conversations. It was interesting how, so for instance, we heard people talking about returning citizens, individuals coming out of the judicial system, and because they couldn't easily look for jobs because of the COVID situation, are turning to entrepreneurship as a way of sort of taking skills that they have and, and trying to monetize those. You and I have talked a lot about how people get into entrepreneurship, and there's two major paths. One is sort of the opportunity entrepreneur. Those are the people that we typically think of. They've invented something in their garage, and they want to take it out and take it to the market, and they look for sources of capital and so forth. And then there are the necessity entrepreneurs. These are the people who, because all other avenues seem closed off, now they're saying, okay, well, I got to do something. What do I know to be able to monetize? And let's give it a go. And those individuals are, they have a lot of guts. They don't necessarily have it well thought out in terms of how to take it forward. We're not very well prepared in supporting that. When I say we, I'm talking about the workforce, resources that exist, capital sources that exist, 
know, these are sort of the under, you know, overlooked Main Street jobs or neighborhood businesses that are essential to the neighborhood. But there's a tendency to kind of look down your nose at them because it's a hair salon or some other sort of personal service business that's critical, takes a lot of guts to put together, but they don't get a lot of support. And so I think that's an area that we're going to increasingly have to put some attention to both kinds of entrepreneurship. And then when you layer in that there are certain places and communities, and it's both urban, inner city, as well as rural, where venture capital doesn't go. I mean, it just doesn't go there. And banks are loath to lend money or to connect people to other sources of capital. And so those are things that are systemic and we need to pay a lot more attention to. There's one other thing too, and that is that what we've seen in this pandemic, so for the first time in our history of dealing with unemployment, with the exception of situations where there's a hurricane that plows through, so there's special unemployment assistance that's given there, on a countrywide basis, we've never provided unemployment assistance to people who are self-employed or who work gig work or who do things you know, on their own, who, who may have a business, but they're the only employee. So the first time we saw the federal government step in and say, let's provide some bridge for those people. That's been needed for a very long time. The challenge is both with this assistance program and with the future assistance program is that our existing systems aren't designed to handle that. There's been a lot of concern about fraud. There's been some groups that have been out there that have gained the system. By and large, the people who are asking for assistance who've gotten are legitimately qualified, but there are a few who've figured out how to game the system and have taken advantage of it and, and have peeled off some money. But the states now are keenly aware that there are a group of people out there who live in this world. It's a world that we just don't have good data on, who are out there are doing things on their own, and we don't have any system in place that recognizes this as a legitimate part of the economy that is critical. And just to make the point that this isn't just a poor person's problem. One of the things I came away with in the Nebraska conversation, Nebraska is very low on unemployment, very high labor participation rate. And we heard people talking in our conversation about Nebraskans having to have two, three, sometimes four jobs in order to make ends meet. Well, these aren't all paycheck jobs. I mean, these are other things that they're doing, and they're not mutually exclusive. If I get a paycheck and I'm injured on the job, workers' compensation takes care of me. If I'm working a gig job and I get injured on that, first of all, there's no disability assistance for that. There's no healthcare assistance beyond your own insurance on that. And it affects the ability to do the paycheck job. These aren't separate issues. We don't have in place the kinds of systems that we normally expect for what's the more formal workforce world to deal with the more informal workforce world, which is just as important and plays an incredibly important role for everyday workers, not just a few. Yeah, absolutely. And it really represents probably one of the fastest growing forms of entrepreneurship, whether people identify as entrepreneurs or not, they're in that space. 
And so our ecosystems really have to address how do we support them to help them get better at this to achieve not only their income needs, but a degree of economic security and choice. Well, Peter, we've got to wrap up. We're at the end of our time. Uh, Hey, I want to thank you for joining us today. And we'll be posting information about the Institute and your work. And so we appreciate sharing that. And for our listeners today, just remind you, you can learn more about Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast by going to our website at www.energizingentrepreneurs.org. There are some free website resources. This is where you'll find more about Peter and his work, where you can join our E2 National Practitioners Network and access resources on how you can grow entrepreneurial ecosystems, access our free um, monthly newsletter, and of course, sign up on your favorite platform for this podcast. Our next podcast will be with Shelly and focus on megatrends. Peter, thank you for joining us today. You're doing amazing work. You're a good friend. Happy holidays to you and yours. Okay. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Mm -hmm.